Hey, real quick, I just wanted to let you know that Gabba Gabba Hunt is now a record store. Well, not really a store, but a booth at an antique store located in Eastridge Mall in Gastonia, North Carolina. Vintage Village is three stores down from Dillard's on the left. And my booth is on the left side of Vintage Village. It's the one with all the records. You can't miss it. I've got over a thousand records, toys, t-shirts, DVDs, VHS, all kinds of stuff there. So come check it out. Gabba Gabba Hunt Records and Vintage Goods located in Vintage Village at Eastridge Mall, Gastonia, North Carolina. You are now listening to the Gabba Gabba Hunt Talks Podcast, where we bring you conversations with people connected to the Carolina's underground music scene. Your host, Mike Phillips of Van Huskins. records that were like gold finals they're like 12 inch singles or whatever well see that they're like they're like five bucks yeah yeah now you see them people are selling for like like I bought I bought Black Flag Nervous Breakdown 7 inch mm-hmm. autographed by I mean I couldn't verify that any of them were, were anybody but just everybody in the band and then there was even an H with like four bars like somebody got handed with a sign or something and I mean, I don't have it more because I sold it on eBay years ago, but I paid two dollars for it. Yeah, I bought, I bought anti-scene drastic EP. It was autographed by everybody in the band, and then some people after, you know. And I, I sold it on eBay I've years ago. I've never seen one drastic that was signed by all four original members. Of the yeah, we know which one that is. <laughs> and, what, uh, and Joe Young signed it to Blood. That's yeah. I was just saying, I'm, I'm, I was able to get all four of the original. I'm not 100% sure that all four that were originally on there because like I said there's a couple of guys from later lineups um, but I, I sold it on eBay years ago when, when I was unemployed for a little while years ago I had a whole stack of those OG yeah. I still got most of my anti-scene stuff I sold that I sold I'm trying to remember what else there was another one I sold I sold a GG Allen 7 inch I wish I still had um, there was a lot of things I sold I wish I still had yeah. that tends to happen yeah like I said, I mean, I've, I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm okay with it now because I got that creative records right there. A lot of the stuff I love, some of it's doubles I've got, but some of it's like, you know, if, if the record's worth $150 and it's sitting here and I listen to it once every couple of years, right. maybe I should try to get a little bit of money out of it. Yeah. What are we doing? Uh, well, I'm actually already recording, so oh. we'll, we'll get started at some point. I mean, that whole thing, that entire and, conversation, uh, I've got... Water if you need anything to drink. I've got beers. I've got PBR. I've got coffee. This will be just fine. You want one of these, Russell? No, I'm good. You want a beer? No, we, I just I mean, we just ate Waffle House. I'm like super stuff. Ah, Waffle House. Um, well, I guess we can get started kind of kind of whenever here. And I'm talking today to, to Malcolm Tent from uh, currently Anti Scene, but also Trash American Style Record Store, TPOS Record Label. Done a lot of other stuff too. And also have Russ Ward with me, but he says he's going to keep his mouth shut most of the time, probably. <laughs> but I've told him to, you know, chime in whenever. Russell Short. <laughs> Such an obedient lad. That's why we like to keep him around. Well, Malcolm, the, the first question I always have on my podcast is kind of like, what was the first thing about music as a kid that grabbed you? Like, Oh, man. You know, <laughs> when it was this? that's really odd. The second you asked that, all of a sudden I thought of something that I had not thought of in a very, 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 very long time. Uh, my old man had really good taste in music when I was a kid. He had a really good record collection. It wasn't mm-hmm. big, but it was all good. Yeah. And I remember clearly he had a uh, history of Otis Redding. Mm-hmm. 
He had the best of Lou Rawls. He had James Brown live at the Apollo. He had the Beatles' White Album, Sgt. Yeah. Pepper. All this really good stuff. The exciting Wilson Pickett. Like a lot of, mm. a lot of awesome soul music. And I remember when I was very, very young, there was this one song on this Otis Redding record. It was the first time I'd ever had a, a, a song stuck in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what was happening. You know, like I kept hearing this song over and over and over again, and I couldn't get it to stop. And I was really wigged out by that. I thought it was abnormal or something. I didn't understand that's what happens with great music is that it gets stuck in your mind. Yeah. So the first I can tell you right now, that might be the earliest memory of something really, really, really grabbing me and blowing my mind was yeah. having this one Otis Redding song stuck in my mind. Yeah. But the earliest memory I have of music at all, it wasn't even memory of music. It was a memory of a record. Yeah. And I remember being maybe... I couldn't have been more than three or four years old at the time because I was born in 1964. Mm-hmm. And I remember in the family living room, we had a great big old console stereo, yeah. you know, with the record player on the inside mm-hmm. and big speakers and a huge wooden cabinet. And you'd open up the wooden lid and the record player was on the inside. Yeah. I remember sort of hanging on to the outside of this big console and looking over the edge where the lid was up and the record player was inside and watching that Beatles white album spin around. Mm. And it was the side with the apple cut in half. Mm. Yeah. So it was either side two or side four, but I remember that record. And I remember my father had an Al Hurt record with this great big face of Al Hurt. One you've probably seen at many a thrift oh, shop. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, with Java <laughs> and sugar lips, yeah. you know, that one, he had that one. And I was just looking at this giant face on this record cover, you know, mm-hmm. with Al Hurt. And he had this comedy record called You Don't Have to Be Jewish mm. that had all these, like, weird-looking people on it. They were all, I guess, all kinds of different ethnic people who weren't Jewish, and that was the punchline of the record, was you don't have to be Jewish to like this record. Yeah. But I'd, like, look at these people and try to figure out what their deal was because they mm-hmm. all looked really <laughs> weird. So, it, I, you know, it's, it's kind of odd. Like, my first memories are more of, like, the objects than yeah. the music yeah, that was that was me too like because my dad had a record collection and i before i got to play it i got to look at it like i could look at the records but i couldn't play them you know and so i would look at like george carlin record where he's making all the faces and stuff on yeah you know, at, uh, was that occupation fool or occupation uh, fool yeah mm-hmm. and then uh like the sly and the family stone record uh the greatest hits i just thought that i was like they just looked like the coolest people in the world to me and i just sit there and stare at them yeah and uh so then when yeah. i finally got to play my dad's record collection that was that was it blew my mind, you know. Just yeah. Like, I mean, because I do the same thing. I the I just picked this up the other day. Russ and I were talking about some record shopping I'd done recently. I picked up a copy of the exciting Wilson Pickett, mm-hmm. which was one that the old man had. And Wilson Pickett in that pink suit and those shiny black socks and those shoes jumping up in the air. I was like, what is this? Yeah. Who is this guy? <laughs> What's he doing? And yeah, by the time I realized that this dude on the record cover was the same guy who was singing, you know, in the midnight hour yeah. and bear. Okay. Th- ah, okay. This really cool, awesome looking guy is singing this music. Mm-hmm. That's so great. And the connections were slowly made and just kind of wormed their way into my psyche. I think when I talk to a lot of my friends who are, you know, vinyl collectors to this day, that's kind of, they, they all talk about that that initial 
reaction to holding a record in their hand, you know, from their parents' collection or whatever, and how, like, just looking at the cover and looking at the people on it and everything, it was all that before you even heard the music. So yeah. that's why, like, to this day, like, when I buy records, I'm be- while I'm listening to them, I'm sitting there just looking at everything I can on the record. And I'll oh, flip yeah. through them several different times. Like, if I buy five or six in a day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to look at them over and over again while I'm listening to them. Yeah, sure. Read, read the liner notes, yep. read the credits, look at the labels. I mean, I, when I saw that Wilson Pickett record the other day, I, I totally, I popped. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is this is it, you know? And I looked at the labels, those beautiful old Atlantic labels, the really old ones, the maroon and sort of pinkish yeah. color Atlantic labels with the great big stereo on the left-hand yeah. side. <laughs> I mean, graphic art masterworks mm-hmm. oh, you yeah. know and you know i remember you know watching atlantic records and atlantic records are not paying me to say any of this <laughs> i i don't like them as a corporation anyway but those old atlantic records with the whirlpool logo and mm-hmm. you know watch the record spin it was a whirlpool spinning around i just loved that stuff when i was a kid yeah loved it so when was it that you sort of got more into music as a as like a you started listening to your own music you know the old man got into like heavier rock music mm-hmm. as time went on stuff like three dog night and steppenwolf yeah. and uh i latched onto that immediately okay yeah. like when i was in second grade three dog night was the bomb <laughs> and you know steppenwolf was you know great it was like this heavy music sung by this guy who sounded really pained and like he was agonized like god damn (laughs) the pusher (laughs) you know and i i couldn't even say that word you know but here it was coming off of a record you know so that was really exciting but the first like music the first band the first rock and roll that was truly my own that belonged to me that i didn't get from anybody else was Grand Funk Railroad. Okay, which one? Live album. All right, yeah. <laughs> and I, I never tire of telling this story. I mean, if you want to go back a little bit, technically the first rock and roll that was really my own was Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. Because my father was the type of guy who always had to have the latest technology, especially yeah. when it came to stereo equipment and stuff like that. He always had the newest 8-track player and the newest big speakers and like the psychedelic light box you could get at Radio Shack, which was just flashing Christmas lights, you know, with a prismatic screen. But he had all that stuff. And one day he came home from Sears at the Westland Mall, and he had this strange contraption. It was about the size of, I don't know, it's smaller than like a school box, you know, smaller than that. And it had a flap on it, and he had these two things that you would pop into it. They were cassettes. Yeah. These cassette things. And he showed me how to work it. You take the cassette out the plastic box, you stick it into this slot, and you close the the little flap, and you slide this lever over, and it'll play music. Mm -hmm. And the two cassettes that he got with it were Led Zeppelin 1 and Led Zeppelin 2. Okay. So I immediately fell in love with those. Yeah. Like my, my earliest memories of hearing Led Zeppelin are through this little tiny, like three inch speaker on yeah. this battery powered <laughs> cassette thing. Probably one of the first cassette players on the market, you know, I'm going to guess. So I love Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. You know, who doesn't? And I was visiting with my uncle one day and going through his record collection and he had Led Zeppelin one and two on, on full length LP. Yeah. Which blew my mind because they were big, you know, cassettes were little. Mm-hmm. These things were big, you know, and they had 
big artwork and Zep 2 opened up and it had a gatefold sleeve. And I immediately started pestering my uncle to give me these Led Zeppelin <laughs> records. And I was I was a re- relentless little brat, you know, who wasn't at that age? Yeah. You know, I was like seven or eight years old, maybe even six or seven. And I was just pestering him to give me these two Led Zeppelin records. And I wouldn't let it alone. And finally said, listen, I will take you to the department store next weekend and I'll buy you your own record. Mm-hmm. How's that? <laughs> and I said, great, you know, cause I thought I'm going to get my Led Zeppelin record finally. And so the big day came, it was a Saturday and uh, me and my brothers and probably the whole family went to this department store called the treasury. Okay. And I grew up in Florida in Hialeah. And so um, the treasury department store was on 103rd street in Hialeah. It was like the big department store to go to. Yeah. And the treasury, the way they laid out the store was very intelligent as far as I'm concerned because you'd walk in the door and the first thing you saw was the record department. It was right there when you walked in. Yeah. And they always had whatever the latest hot release on a like like a kind of a low, long wall. Mm-hmm. And they would just line up row after row after row of the latest hot release. Uh, the earliest one, well, maybe not the earliest, but I remember specifically seeing Billion Dollar Babies by Alice Cooper. Oh, yeah. Brand new release. And I thought, Joni Mitchell. You know, like, seriously, <laughs> I heard the name Alice Cooper. I thought of a long, yeah. <laughs> blonde-haired folk singer, but I couldn't understand why there was all this snake skin all over. You know, it just didn't make any sense. Yeah. Different story, though. This time when we walked in, the latest hot release just happened to be live album by Grand Funk. Mm-hmm. And I just... I said, I want that one. That's the one I want. My uncle was like, are you sure? I said, I want that one. You know, because yeah. Mark Farner, the blonde hair flying through the air and the guitar. Yeah. And Don Brewer, you know, like hunched over the drums and the mysterious other guy whose face you couldn't see because it was concealed. Because mostly that Mark Farner mop of blonde hair yeah. flying through the air. I said, I want that. And so my uncle paid the four ninety nine for it. Mm-hmm. And I took it home and uh, played it on the big stereo system because the old man always had a big, loud stereo system, like really obnoxious. So you can imagine what Grand Funk Live album sounded like, (laughs) you know, to my my ears, because that record came out in 1970. So I was probably six years old. Yeah. So imagine having that knuckle dragging, (laughs) asphalt eating, head banging sludge yeah whatever it was it just clicked with my dna immediately and that was it grand funk was my entree into my own world of rock and roll yeah and lucky me it just happened to be the right exact thing i needed yeah primitive maybe two chords at best but the bass playing the bass playing of mel shocker which was like so distorted and so overloaded and so sludgy. I mean, I just locked right into that thing, oh, yeah. man. And yeah. it gives me goosebumps to this day when I hear pretty much anything by Grand Funk, with that album especially. Yeah. You know, if you go look in my car now, that CD of Grand Funk Live album is in there right now.
So when did you pick up an instrument for the first time? That's another one of those absolutely serendipitous things yeah. that makes no sense at all. For some reason, and I asked him once, I said, Father, why did you have a bass guitar in the house? Why did you have a bass? He said, oh, I just thought it'd be easier to play because it only had four strings. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. And I never once ever saw him play it, ever, but it was always just there in the house. And it's another one of those things I remember very clearly, the big family console stereo with that bass guitar leaning against it. Yeah. It was just always kind of there. And it was um, some kind of a Fender knockoff, you know, some kind of made in Korea thing. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it was a... It's bigger than I was, and it had this really, what I thought was kind of like psychedelic-looking pick guard. It was orange and black, and it was like this swirly design, yeah. and I could like look at it and see faces and oh, yeah. you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and I was really fascinated by this thing. I didn't even know what it was. You know, I couldn't equate this object with any of the sounds like the that were coming can, yeah. out of the records. You know, it didn't. You know, it was just this thing. But you fast forward to 10th grade when my one and only friend in high school said, hey, let's put a band together for mm -hmm. the high school talent show. Um, I'll sing. Uh, we know we know a couple of guys who have guitars. Um, what are you going to do? I said, oh, well, we've got this guitar. It was a bass guitar. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, that was just what was there. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, I'll play this thing. And, um, you know, somehow learned how to plunk out God Save the Queen by okay. the Sex Pistols because <laughs> we were going to be a punk rock band yeah. you know, at, the, at the Freaky Funky Follies talent show. <laughs> and that was just it. It was just the instrument that was there. And um, I guess it just somehow connected with me in the same way that the Mel Shocker bass did. This was a bass guitar. Yeah. And I remember, you know, in, in the height of Kiss Mania, you know, when everybody was into Kiss, I didn't know the difference between the guitars. You know, I just assumed that Gene Simmons was the lead guitar player. Yeah. Because he was, you know, he was. <laughs> I the probably most, thought the same thing at one time. Yeah. You know. He was the most visible. He yeah. was the most charismatic. So obviously he had to be the lead guitar player. And Paul Stanley must be the bass player because mm. he's the simplest looking <laughs> one. And, you know, I didn't know the difference between i didn't know yeah i don't think at that age i really thought much about the difference between the instruments or anything i just like you know gene simmons must be the, the main guy because yeah he's, he's the one that looks the coolest yeah totally <laughs> and just pure dumb luck man plunking out god save the queen on this bass guitar it must have somehow vibrated correctly in my psyche uh plus it was easier to play you know yeah. I, I remember taking trying to learn how to play an acoustic guitar in the sixth grade it was just completely hopeless at it. Same for me. When I first picked up a guitar, it just it didn't come to me. But bass, when I picked it up, it finally—it was like it, it was meant to be. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then I got better guitar, but I just—I still would rather play bass. Well, you know, same deal. I mean, I tour all over the the globe playing acoustic punk rock guitar. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, in sixth grade, could not do it. Mm -hmm. Just couldn't do it. And you know, even beginning to play bass, I could barely do it. But you know. Who actually could at the beginning? Yeah, I mean the same thing you know. for me. I picked it up because 
when we put the band together, it was like, well, we know a guy that plays guitar. We know a guy that plays drums. I guess I'm going to play bass. And, you know, I plunked out a few notes, kind of like you said, kind of figure out how to do a couple of things and and then go for it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was just a lot of fun, you know, because my first time ever being on stage in any capacity whatsoever. And I... That was it. I loved it. Now, did that? Did you have a name for that band? Yes, we were called the Punks. Okay, (laughs) we were the Punks, and the guitar player, one of the two guitar players we had, this guy named Phil Wicks, really blew my mind because he had um, some kind of like a Les Paul copy, Mm -hmm. which was still nicer than any guitar I'd ever seen in my life. And before the talent show, he had made. I guess out of cardboard, his own pick guard, yeah. which said the punks that had a black, uh, you know, white on black with a backwards K. He made his own logo for this thing and like taped it on to the, the, the pick guard yeah. of his guitar or whatever. <laughs> I was like, Whoa, that looks so cool. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we played God save the queen and people actually seemed to like it. Weird. Yeah. Really weird. We we did the talent show too. We did uh, Jane's Addiction Mountain Song. Oh, see that's the generation gap. Right yeah, there. generation <laughs> gap. But also, we were playing punk rock at the time. But we just figured that was going to be better for us to play the talent show. And was it? No. Oh, <laughs> nobody liked the but, Jane's Addiction. No, I mean we did okay, and people enjoyed it. But there was another band that played Silent Lucidity by Queensrÿche after us, oh. and they're the ones that won the talent show, right? Because they were cooler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were way cooler. Well, they played the more popular song well, too. Of course, of course. <laughs> nobody at our high school knew who Jane's Addiction was at that time. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, we had a similar experience. Um, ended up playing the talent show again, maybe a couple years later mm-hmm. i forget with a couple other people because uh, my youngest brother went to the same high school i did and he and one of his friends wanted to enter the talent show and um they recruited me to play bass just because i was there and you know the bass was there and i could sort of play it we did heaven and hell by black sabbath but the entire live evil version yeah you know, with 10 minutes of doon, 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 and raps and, you know, went over like the proverbial Led Zeppelin, man. Yeah. Nobody wanted to hear that. <laughs> we lost out to a bunch of cheerleaders yeah. at the talent show. It was tragic. <laughs> so after that, was it how, how long was it before you played in like a serious band or was was that a serious band? No, that wasn't a serious band at all. I mean, the punks. We, we kind of tried to stay together afterwards, after the talent show, because, you know, it went over well. Mm-hmm. And we figured, well, let's, let's try to learn some stuff. And um, the schism was immediate because the other guys in the band wanted to learn Another Brick in the Wall okay. by Pink Floyd. And that was just like the dreariest, mm-hmm. most tedious, turgid bullshit <laughs> that I could think of at the time. Yeah. And, you know, we also, like, didn't have enough guitars to go around. And, you know, it was just kind of doomed from the beginning. So, my because my younger brother, he's four years younger than I am. He was a drummer at the time. Mm -hmm. Actually still is. An excellent drummer. He would deny that to this day, but he's a really, really, like, really good drummer. I got a younger brother that's a killer drummer, too. There you go. (laughs) These rhythm sections run in the family, I I guess. I guess so, yeah. 
Um, so he was always like jamming with various friends around the neighborhood and he started hanging out with this guy and they, they formed a uh, Black Sabbath cover band. Uh, and once again, I was the guy who could kind of play a bass sort of, and there was a bass in the house. Mm-hmm. So we became Hand of Doom. Okay. Me and my brother and this guy, Lonnie Pollard, and we played Sabbath, yeah. all Sabbath. <laughs> you know, we were besotted with Black Sabbath, you know, because the, the first Sabbath record, which I'd, I'd only heard for the first time in my senior year, that was one of those, whoa. Same for me, yeah. That's that's my favorite album of all time now. Yeah. yeah it's just really good. That was some heavy stuff, man. Uh, that was when, like, cassette Walkman's were first starting to come into common usage. Yeah. And so I had a cassette. It wasn't even of the whole album. It was just of Black Sabbath and NIB mm-hmm. and like maybe a couple other songs. And I loved bringing my cassette with the Walkman to high school and saying, here, listen to this, yeah. <laughs> you know, because nobody had heard anything like that before. You know, yes, this was like 1981, 82, but South Florida was absolute cultural wasteland, yeah. you know, and, you know, obviously like older people were into Black Sabbath, but nobody in my high school had anything even remotely resembling good taste in music mm-hmm. except for me. And that's that's just a fact. That's just a fact. Yeah. Hey, you know? say, wait, me, me and my me and my buddy Matt. That was it. Yeah, in our high school. That was it. Me, me and my friend Rick <laughs> but, and Greg. Yeah, and, and like a couple others, yeah. you know. But you know, for for what it's worth, like I was the dude who was just on the cutting edge because I was just more into music than mm. anybody else, and I just happened to like this weird punk rock stuff, and just by default, this Black Sabbath, you know, and like there there's a. Um, in my high school yearbook, there's a, a picture of the entire class together. You know, they got all everybody in the senior class, all however many there were of us, a couple hundred of us. Yeah. And in the picture, there's you can you can spot me because I'm the only one wearing not only a rock T-shirt, but a an Aussie shirt. Yeah. One kid out of 240 whatever in the class. Mm-hmm. That's what the odds were like. I was definitely outnumbered. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the first Sabbath record on a Walkman. Wow. So that, like, I got heavily into Sabbath for quite a while. Mm. And we were doing our band Hand of Doom. And, you know, I played, like, the local rec center. And we played, like, a lunchtime session at the high school. And now, was it all Sabbath or did you play all any original Sabbath. stuff? All Sabbath. All Sabbath. All Sabbath all the time. Yeah. Never even thought to play anything original yeah just wasn't even on the radar you know i just didn't know if maybe you thought let's try to write our own black sabbath song nah yeah. not even we were just having so much fun with the yeah. regular thing we, we played like deep cuts we played like saint vitus dance mm-hmm. and uh, you know nib and we tried to do planet caravan yeah. you know <laughs> like you know of course obviously paranoid and black sabbath and you know a lot of the regular stuff but we were like really really into sabbath yeah and that one just kind of, you know, we're just kids screwing around. It really wasn't really going to go anywhere. Um, and it was somewhere around that time that Broken Talent sort of fell together, okay. which was my band in South Florida that put out a record. Okay. And that record had a song called My God Can Beat Up Your God on it. Yeah. Which you'd better know. I know that song. Okay. <laughs> but I did not actually did not know that it was a cover song. Or I may have at one point noticed in the liner notes that it was. But yeah. I wouldn't have known to this day if you said 
Ask me that. I want to know. Well, guess what? You're talking to the author right here, <laughs> right can. now. Co-author, if we're going to be <laughs> and, fair. and right here is where I'll play the song. Ah. <laughs> the original, if I can find it. I mean, it was just kind of like out of the more or less out of the ashes of Hand of Doom, the Black mm-hmm. Sabbath cover band, became my first attempt at writing original stuff yeah. and being a band, which was Broken Talent. Yeah. And that was me and the aforementioned guy, Rick, from high school. Mm-hmm. Now, he was an interesting dude because when I met him in ninth grade, and it's just another one of those things you cannot predict or make happen. We were just in the same homeroom, and I just happened to be sitting in front of him. And I don't even know how we started talking. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, how do you end up talking to the guy behind you? Yeah. you know? it, it, it just somehow happened. <laughs> and he knew nothing about music. Okay. Like, literally nothing. Because the first question I said was, like, what kind of music are you into? He said, I'm not into music. I said, you don't have any records? He said, oh, I have a record. What is it? It's a it's a ballet record. Hmm. It's like, wow. <laughs> well, you need to get into music, you know? So I started telling him about Devo and the Ramones yeah. and, you know, all the stuff I was into. And sure enough, he was receptive to it. And he was the other guy in high yeah. school who liked good music. Uh, but it was really mostly me turning him onto stuff. Um I think it was us. We, we tried to bring a few other people along on that journey with us, but you know, a few of them was like they'd go to the record store with us one time, and then that would be it. Like, well, that didn't quite catch with them. So that's why it was like two or three of us that, that were listening to the music. We just went out and explored it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for us, it was like it was like open hostility, you know, from all the other idiots yeah. in school. They they not only didn't want to know, they wanted to stamp us out. I mean, it was ridiculous. We didn't run into that, but. I guess we were lucky in that respect because I hear that story a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, 
You can't take the punk rock out of the punk, baby. <laughs> Once it's there, it's there. So, you know, we did this thing with the punks, and that was, whatever, 10th grade, I mm-hmm. guess. And that was kind of the end of any sort of collaboration between me and him. We graduated. He went to go to school at University of Florida up in Gainesville. And um, me and some other friends went to go visit him one weekend. And it was uh, like a really weird repeat of how I discovered the base. We were up there at his apartment, his student Mm -hmm. apartment, bored out of our minds. And for some reason, he had a bass guitar in the closet. I don't know why, where it came from, but there was a bass there. And he said, let's write some songs. I said, all right, what else are we going to do? Let's write some songs. Mm -hmm. And... You know, only having like the most rudimentary technique possible, if you could even call it technique. Yeah. I don't even know if this thing was in tune or not, but it was there. <laughs> and I grabbed it and I just thought, well, okay, if you go by the shapes, go like make a square, whatever. If you play a square, it goes like do, 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 do. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Okay, that's a song. Let's. Uh, that's how I learned to write songs. Just like, this sounds good. Let's yeah. go with that. Yeah. <laughs> And um, I'm pretty sure I wrote My God Can Beat Up Your God that day, you know, like right then and there. And he came up with some words and I came up with some words and we made this primitive cassette of it Mm because he was one of those guys that always had audio gear. Yeah. You know, he had a a cassette recorder. So we were able to like make a demo (laughs) of um, these ridiculous little ditties that we just sort of plunked out. And... um, he eventually transferred back to South Florida from Gainesville, and mm-hmm. we just he just had this idea that we should start a band. Yeah. It wasn't my idea. He just, for some reason, one of the most unmusical people you could ever hope to meet, decided we were going to have a band. Yeah. And that's just the way it went. Now, when you got around to doing the record, did you put the record out? Or did yeah. Someone, okay, so you did it on your own. Did it all out. That was TPOS number one. Okay. <laughs> um, and it was just, the only reason we did it was because he had this idea that if we had a record, it'd be easier to get gigs. Yeah. Did you play, I guess you probably played a little bit before that, like played, had you played out at all before you we played the record? We played one show before that, okay. which was just so utterly absurd it was just ridiculous the show we played um to make a very long story short we didn't even have a band we just thought it'd be cool to play a show somewhere yeah so we recorded in his garage just the most ridiculous stupid tape of like me plunking around on the bass trying to play mongoloid by devo and whatever else and him like singing along with me plunking on this bass. I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. Yeah. But he sent it to this guy who he knew was booking shows at this venue called Flynn's in Miami Beach, Florida, with the idea that uh, he'd hear it and give us a show. Yeah. He heard it and he gave us a show. <laughs> uh, to this day, I cannot even begin to imagine why. <laughs> I, I seriously, it, it, I, I, I'm I'm speechless yeah. at the thought of this guy actually hearing this tape of me. Pl- the bass wasn't even plugged in, you know. It was just like me going doom, 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 <laughs> and him singing along some ridiculous doggerel in a garage. Um, Howard Davis, if you're out there, I hope you still got that tape. I want to hear it. <laughs> um, he booked us a show, 
so now we, we kind of had to put a band together and, um, we sort of did, yeah, but, um, in a theme that would recur a lot throughout the history of broken talent, we didn't have a drummer. Yeah. Um, we had a, a, like one of our friends, older sister volunteered to play drums, even though she had never, you know, she might've seen a drum set, (laughs) you know, on TV somewhere, (laughs) but that was about it. She could just about hold a stick and like hit a drum with it. That was really about it. And she bailed the day of the show, you know, like we actually got to the club and she said, I can't do it. (laughs) I just can't do it. So then, um, we recruited someone out of the audience to play drums and it was, you know, absolute shambles. Oh yeah. (laughs) It was, it was ridiculous. I remember this one couple tried to get up and dance they gave up (laughs) they they went back and sat down it was really and the whole time the promoter howard davis is looking at us like what (laughs) what yeah you let us do this (laughs) yeah you're the guy who booked us don't look at me it wasn't my idea and guess what it wasn't my idea i was just along (laughs) for the ride so a pretty inauspicious debut for broken talent And so, you know, we, we played that show and maybe one or two others, but just by sheer luck and chance, Rick was able to find somebody who could play guitar mm. and he found somebody who could play drums. And I was just the guy who had the bass, you know, and he just sort of put this thing together and we just kind of recorded this record, yeah, you know, um, in our drummer's living room on New Year's Day by her hungover brother and all we had was uh, a bunch of like radio shack mics Mm -hmm. and by this time he was rick was going to university of miami and he knew one of the librarians there so that he he was always able to get first dibs and like all the old reel-to-reel tape they were going to throw away yeah so he had all the like the old old stacks of reel-to-reel tape they're probably like 40 50 years old at the time yeah or however old you know and he somehow got an old reel-to-reel tape recorder. So we just had all this junk, all this junk equipment yeah. <laughs> that we hauled down to our drummer's living room. And he actually had like a, a mixing board. Yeah. So we plugged all this stuff into the mixing board and ran the mixing board out into our ancient reel-to-reel recorder. Mm-hmm. And just, we had three songs that we could kind of play okay. So we just played them over and over and over again till we got ones that we thought sounded all right. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, went to the pressing plant and made a record. Heck yeah. yeah. So where, where'd you get it pressed at? Was it just, I mean, back then there were a lot more places that did that and it was probably a lot cheaper too. Yeah, way. I mean, um, South Florida had a bunch of pressing plants and I remember that Rick went into the phone book and looked up pressing plants. Mm-hmm. And he found one that was closest to us, which was a place called Miami Tape, which was like in Hialeah. Yeah. And I worked at a warehouse in Hialeah, like maybe five minutes down the road. So it just made sense. Yeah. You know, on my way to work one day, drop off the tape, mm-hmm. go to work. The next, however much later, go over there on my lunch hour and watch him cut the lacquer. You know, and then go back to work. And then yeah. one day after work, go over there and pick up the records. That's you know, simple, <laughs> real simple. And they were uh, very cheap, very low quality, very yeah. low grade. I remember the guy c- 
cutting the lacquer and he was chain smoking cigarettes and blowing smoke all over the lacquer, <laughs> which, uh, not a good idea, kids. You don't want to do that. <laughs> this guy didn't care. He's blowing smoke all over our lacquer. Eh, whatever. Who cares? It's punk rock. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't know. Didn't care. So it was just a, a ploy to try to get gigs. Yeah. Did it work? Did you start playing it, more after It that? worked. It worked. You know, we could say, hi, we're Broken Talent. Here's our record. Yeah. And the, the actually, there's only one real promoter in South Florida. And he said, oh, okay. All right, I'll book you to open up for these hardcore bands, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was just really that that flimsy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how long did that, that band go on for? Wow, we somehow managed to survive until early 1986. Okay. And that's when um, I really got my taste for the the life of a rock and roller. Yeah, yeah. Because... I've always loved traveling and I've always loved being on the road. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, well, okay, we, we've got this band and we've got a record. Let's go tour. Let's yeah. play some shows. Let's, let's leave South Florida because South Florida is a gross, despicable place mm-hmm. and it's terrible to be here. Let's go somewhere else. <laughs> So using Maximum Rock and Roll, the magazine, and reading all the scene reports and saying, okay, well, this guy in Durham, North Carolina says he can book us. Let's go there. And, oh, this dude in Charlotte, Jeff Clayton. Hmm. He says he can help us get a show. I'll call Jeff Clayton. Yeah. So he booked us at a place in Columbia, South Carolina. And, oh, there's this place in Atlanta that's a venue. I'll call them up. Well, they, hey, they're going to let us play. All right. So we all of a sudden had three shows. Yeah. And that gets brought up a lot, the maximum rock and roll thing. It it really was super important. I don't know how important it is today. I mean, it's not really a magazine anymore. I think it's just a website. But, you know, back then, at least in the probably 80s, 90s, it's super important to. Critical. Yeah. Critical. I mean, you really couldn't do, I mean, you could, but you couldn't do as much as a band without maximum rock and roll, you know, as I mean, everything from booking a tour to advertising, to getting reviews for your record, to being interviewed. I mean, they were totally populist, you know, really almost anybody could get into maximum rock and roll. If you could meet certain basic requirements, you know, and have literally a worldwide audience reading about your stuff, you know, booking tours was, I mean, as far as I can tell, impossible without MRR. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's where I met Jeff Clayton mm-hmm. through at Maximum Rock and Roll. The first out of town gig we ever played was in Durham, North Carolina. You know, that, that's really, that's cool. Yeah, exactly. That's really cool. Yeah. And so we, we had these three shows. They were spaced out over a week. And so, you know, it was a ridiculous tour. You know, we starved. The car broke down. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't, you know, made zero money. But it was like such an adventure mm-hmm. and so much fun oh, yeah. that the, the summer after that, this was 84, next summer in 85, I did it again, booked another tour, this, this time all the way up to Albany, New York and back, mm-hmm. which was even more ridiculous 
with like real starvation (laughs) and real poverty but goddamn we played with black flag yeah we played with the freeze we played with the chromags yeah wow crumb suckers um russ ward is getting a word in edgewise this is where the weird intersection of the underground seems to work the very first punk rock band I ever heard of in my hometown in Roanoke, Virginia, is one of the bands he played with. Not not very long after yeah. that, Luke Puke and the Luke Vomits. Puke, yeah. Luke Puke and the Vomits. Oh man, yeah. I played them on your podcast. Too. Yeah, I, I was shocked you found that. <laughs> that was the only thing I could find too. It was pretty terrible sounding, but that was like the only thing I could find. What is it? It was it was some live recording. I think is what it was. Wow, um, it, I want to hear it was, that. I found it. I found it on some like a. Some blog website that was still just just there. That's crazy because I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. And, and, he brought that up some some point on. He does a live Facebook thing every yeah. week, and he brought that up one day, and I did. I, I wasn't aware of that, and I was just like, "Oh my god, that's so crazy!" You know, it's like, what a weird coincidence that you know. Yeah. Those avenues all would merge some way. Yeah. You know, and especially at that time when bands were, you know, compared to now, so few, you know, so thin on the ground. Right, right, you right. Know? And and maybe it was inevitable. I mean, because, you know, we played Marion, Virginia, and, like, who else is going to be in Marion, Virginia? Well, to this day, nobody. Yeah. <laughs> been to Marion, Virginia. There's nothing there except for the Hungry Mother State Park. Right. Hungry Mother. A salute to all the hungry mothers out there and their state parks. That, that sounds like a bad hair band. <laughs> what a hungry mother! Hungry mother! That would be spelled M U T H H A. Hungry mother. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry for interrupting me. You may continue. No, no, that's great. I mean, if, if nothing else, that brought out the fact that there is a Luke Puke in the Vomits recording. That yeah, that yeah. blows my mind. <laughs> I really want to hear that because they were terrible. I'll, I'll look it up and send it to you. I, yeah. I've downloaded the song. I can find it on the hard drive and send it to you. Please do. They, they were like willfully terrible. Yeah. You know, the name kind of gives it away, but, you know, they, they were really trying to be awful and they yeah. were. Um, so, yeah, we just managed to keep it going on, you know. Until, uh, you know, spring of 86 or so, and it just kind of fell apart entirely. Yeah. And, but, you know, like, basically everybody else had lost interest in the band and in the label except me. Mm -hmm. So I just ended up, by default, carrying it on. Yeah. Now, did you say, when did you move to Connecticut? Was this... Did you, well, I, I don't want to jump ahead. No, you may, have, still, you may have still done some stuff in, in no, Florida after that, but no, I mean, uh, was this moved about to, the time that everything changed. Pretty much, yeah. moved to Connecticut in like uh, autumn of '86. Yeah. So you know, broken talent fell apart in the spring of '86, and um, I met who was at the time my wife mm-hmm. right around then, and so like everything just kind of lined up. You know, no more band. Um, I was working a you know a couple of part time jobs. They weren't going anywhere. I was back yeah. living with my parents. It just just there was nothing. I had no prospects. Mm. Nothing on the horizon at all. Just total dead end. And so this girl I met said, "Well, I'm from Connecticut. Connecticut doesn't suck nearly as badly as South Florida. Let's mm-hmm. get out of here and go back to where I come from, and let's open a record store." Yeah. You know, okay. or like a psycho thrift shop is the way she described it. And I said, let's go. Let's get out of here. I don't want to be in South Florida anymore. Mm-hmm. And I've never been to Connecticut except once. And even though I vowed I would never return, <laughs> it's a place to go. <laughs> yeah. So let's do it. 
And that was October of 1986. And that's when I became a dweller north of the border. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it happens, but I did. <laughs> I was just along for the ride. So you moved up there and opened up Trash American Style? Trash American Style, yes. The only record store that matters. Yeah. Well, I just watched the documentary last night. I, I, I need, oh, I need that record. That, I need that record. I, I need that record, yes. And Thurston Moore talking about it. It's like, yeah. yeah, that must have been a pretty important place. <laughs> um, Yeah. Yeah. It, it was. Um, You know, and I, I don't like to toot my own horn, so to speak. But, uh, you know, I've just heard it so much. Uh, Russell toot my horn. Yeah. Toot, toot. <laughs> You know, I mean, I've just heard it so much over the years from so many people and hear it to this very day. You know, I mean, gosh, the landlord chucked us out 14 years ago. And to this day, people say, are you going to reopen? Mm -hmm. Are you going to open up another store? Yeah. You know, I mean, that that to me is a pretty heavy indicator of the effect we had on people's oh, lives, yeah. you know, and that's that's pretty cool. I know, like for me. It was Repo that had that effect on me. Yeah. Yeah, Repo. I mean, whenever I'm in Charlotte, I go to Repo at least once, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, got to dig in Repo, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite record store to go to. Ah. Found some cool Devo stuff last time I was there, and I'm the guy who's got everything by Devo, yeah. but he had a couple of things <laughs> I didn't have, so that was pretty cool. So you opened up the record store, still still doing the label, or, you, or does the record label kind of just... No, I'm still doing the label. Putting um, out records by, or music by other bands at this point? or Yeah, I mean, the label uh, for Minder 2 kind of had to take a, a back seat to getting the store going. Yeah. But um, one of the big things that kind of jump-started it, oddly enough, was one of the young kids who came into the shop, a, a really young customer, was talking to me, and we were having a conversation, and I mentioned that I used to be in a band in Florida, and he said, oh, you got anything out? I said, well, we had this record, but it's out of print. And he said, oh, well, I, you know, if you had something, I'd buy it. And I was really surprised by that because I really thought that it was just in the past. Yeah. You know, I just thought Broken Talent was Florida. That was last year. This is now. Nobody cares. Nobody's interested. It's it's dead. But yeah. this kid said he wanted to hear some. So I thought, well, all right. So I put together, basically for this one kid, a compilation cassette. Mm -hmm. You know, puts together some artwork with a pair of scissors and some glue stick and a typewriter. Yeah. And um, said, all right, this will be TPOS number 17. Broken talent. Good, bad, awful. The kid bought the cassette. Mm -hmm. So I made a couple more. And people bought them. And I was, like, shocked. Yeah. But that was it. You know, that was basically the impetus for the label continuing because people actually wanted to hear some of this stuff so you'd put out 16 releases before that yeah how many were i mean was it more than just your band yeah i mean um we were really into you know the idea of uh support your scene yeah, you yeah. know to use such a quaint expression but we had friends who were in bands and whatnot so we put together like compilation cassettes with a bunch of them and some yeah. other bands that we were corresponding with from out of state and uh, did something by the Gay Cowboys in Bondage, who mm -hmm. were one of the bands that I wanted to be like because they were so good. Yeah. And um, like some other peripheral stuff, like I did a, uh, a cassette by the Reverend Howard Finster, who was the guy who did um, the Talking Heads, Little Creatures album cover. Mm -hmm. um, one of his spoken word thingies. And I made a cassette of the Charles Manson Lie album yeah. at a time when nobody had it. 
And the only reason I had it was because I was visiting Joe Young and he had it on vinyl Mm -hmm. and made a cassette of it for me. And so I thought, well, if no one's got it and I think it's a really cool album, I'll just make more cassettes of it. And God, people bought a lot of those. Pretty girl. Pretty, pretty girl. Cease to exist. Just come and say you love me Give up your work Come on, you can't be I'm your kind Oh, your kind I can see Walk on, walk on I love you, pretty girl. So that was basically the first 16. And then Broken Talent was number 17. Okay. And from then on, it was, I started doing in Connecticut what I did in Florida. Yeah. Just saying, oh, your band's really cool. Can I release a cassette of yours? Yeah, sure. And, um, you know, whatever band I might be in, all right, let's, let's do something. Usually cassettes. Yeah. Uh, I know you do a lot of like DIY kind of stuff these days. Was that what you were doing back then? Oh, yeah. Too? yeah. All DIY. Yeah. All. That's what we always did. I mean, we, I, I still do it this, to this day <laughs> with Van Huskins. And I mean, these, these CDs I'm doing myself. Yeah. Know, now, just, wait, do you actually cut out the inserts? And- yeah. The only thing I get made on these is, is the actual, I get the disc printed and yeah. everything, but everything else I put together. Yeah, um, and now I've I've had some made before, but I, I'm just gonna because people don't really want to buy CDs anymore. Right, I'm just gonna start doing them like that and just kind of making it a little bit more of a niche thing. It's and just so much easier run, that small runs. Yeah, I mean, because you you know if you if you have two Van Huskins CDs and for some reason nobody buys them at all, well, you've only you're only out two CDs. Yeah, you know, and that's what I do. I make like ten of them at a time, and the, and then you know I don't make any more until I need more. Exactly, <laughs> you know, as opposed to being stuck with you know a few hundred you know or even these days you can make a hundred cds but still a hundred yep there's no guarantee anybody's going to want a hundred of my my project band or whatever exactly yeah you know and that's why i love cassettes so much i mean besides the fact that people actually buy them now yeah i love that too always i mean cassette i mean was like the ultimate populist format Mm mm-hmm and yeah, I mean, I make them four at a time with four cassette decks stacked up. I was watching that video the other day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's it. Same deal. If I'm out, I'm out. I'm not even out four cassettes. I can just record over them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. The no risk format. But that's the way it's always been. Like lately, I've, I've gotten into having like cassette inserts professionally printed at a print shop. Mm-hmm. But those are for titles that I know I'm going to sell. Yeah. A certain number of everything else it's the copier and the scissors and i sit there and fold them you know and stick that's, the that's the thing. It, it takes a long time to do all that stuff but, yeah you know it's it's a kind of a labor for love for me you know oh, just very much put so. some music on and do it that's yeah. it you know and, and that's all i do you know that's my my thing it's yeah. uh between the label the rock and roll and selling used records that's what i do yeah, yeah. so that's just you know the night at the office sitting there with a big old stack of cassettes and folding and stuffing and stacking and mm-hmm. then you mail them out what's no problem man no problem i love that <laughs> it's great <laughs> i just think it's great that there are people still out there doing all this like the diy thing yeah because i mean 
for one, you can do it, and there's no reason not to do it. Right. And it's just, I mean, it's it's great to get stuff made, and that, I won't say there's anything lazy about it, but I just appreciate it more when somebody actually puts everything together with their hands. Yeah. And that's just me and me and I mentioned my friend Matt earlier, but me and my friend Matt just going way back. That's what we've done. We've always done it. And we still work on projects together and we get together and we fold things and put them together. And yeah. just, it's, it's a part of punk rock for me. Yeah. I mean, even when, even when I press a record, it's still like, I, I'll get all the records from the pressing plant. Mm-hmm. I get the jackets from the jacket fabricator. Yep. I get the inserts from my local print shop. And I just sit there in my living room with my little assembly line, you know, yeah. and some grand funk playing or something and stuff the record into the sleeve and stuff the insert into the sleeve and put the record in the box. It's there's there's not one single thing in my label that I haven't touched personally with my own two hands. That's really cool. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's very tactile and it's great. Oh, yeah. I love it. Love it. You know, because you get the, the records from the pressing plant, and especially when I do, um, like, what they have, they, they have a random colored vinyl option mm-hmm. where they take basically what's left over at the yeah, end of the day and throw it into a big old vat. Man, I just love looking at all the different color variants yeah. and, uh, you know, grouping them by color and finding the rarest ones and the chase colors and the common <laughs> ones. It's it's a blast, oh, man. Yeah, record yeah. collector heaven, dude. So when you after you opened the record store, how long was it before you played music again after that? I never really stopped. Okay. Um, even I mean, just kind of did solo stuff. And you mentioned kind of doing the solo acoustic punk rock. Yeah, it didn't come to a lot later. Okay. But like when I first moved to Connecticut, I started a band called The King Hatreds. Okay. Which is, uh, for lack of a better term, like a proto grunge thing. Yeah. Bart, you ready? Jim, you ready? Okay, I'm not ready. We were listening to a lot of the stuff that was just coming out of Seattle at the time, you know, like the heavy, sludgy, distorted stuff. But um, our guitar player was really heavily into Kiss mm-hmm. and the Stooges and stuff like that. So his style was just naturally sludgy and distorted and overloaded. Yeah. And, you know, I was getting semi-proficient by this time on the bass. Like, I kind of knew what I was doing. And so we were, we were a power trio. And we did that, you know, never really went beyond Connecticut, but made some good stuff. Yeah. And concurrent with that, I started doing a thing called the Bunny Brains, yep. which was this all improv circus of chaos and insanity, which was a, it was basically a core group of people, myself, a singer, mm-hmm. and usually a drummer with anybody else who wanted to jump on stage and make noise with us yeah. while the three of us held it together. And that was a lot of fun, and that lasted for quite a while. So I was doing that mostly, but, you know, always with, you know, in the background, because the store had to take precedence. Yeah. But I never really stopped doing music. Okay. 
Carolina, there's always been this thread in my history, you know, with North Carolina. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, I don't know why, you know, between playing our first show ever out of town and the whole anti-scene thing and just places I've played and people I know. It's a good state you guys got here. Yeah, it's a I good like state. It. <laughs> <laughs> I like it for the most part. And there's certain things I don't like about it, but that's you could say that about anywhere you go. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. everybody says that about wherever they're yeah, from. Exactly. I mean, whenever I hear people complain about Charlotte, I'm like, man, go anywhere else. You'll complain about yeah, that place. Wherever too. you go, there you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, let's talk a little bit more about trash American style. Let's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you said it was start off as that the idea was like a psycho thrift store. Yeah. And but you wanted to, of course, sell records. Of course. Yeah, I mean the idea was always was going to be records because I knew records. My wife at the time had real good fashion sense mm-hmm. and a really good wardrobe, so she took all of her clothes literally out, out of her closet and put price tags on them and stuck them in the in the store. Yeah. And you know we just brought in all books and posters and incense and when piercing jewelry became a thing, we started making our own piercing jewelry okay. and. Just anything that related to the culture, you know, punk rock, hardcore, underground, whatever, yeah. independent, DIY, we wanted to have. We mm. wanted to be a part of it. We wanted to sell the band's demos. If someone, some dead had made tie-dyes, we wanted their tie-dyes, you know. If anybody made leather collars, we, wanted, we just wanted everything that yeah. the kids around us were making. Mm-hmm. And it worked, you know, it was exciting and it was fun and it was, you know, support the scene time again. You know, I yeah. mean, it was just a really good thing that we had going there. Very populist based, very much a community, if I want to use a term like that. Yeah. Um, I think one reason why we succeeded was that we didn't play favorites. Yeah. You know, the, the deadheads were just as welcome as the straight edge hardcore kids oh, and the yeah. metalheads. You know, our basic deal was if you got an attitude leave it outside mm-hmm. just come on in and we're going to be friends and dig whatever it is that there is to dig yeah and i you know i think because we dealt with a lot of kids you know, like a lot of high school kids a lot mm-hmm. of you know early college years kids and a lot of them really didn't have anybody who would take them seriously they had nowhere to go yeah so we were kind of like the place to go so was this what what, what town was this in was this it? well we started out in brookfield connecticut okay yeah for the first two and a half years then we moved to danbury what was that area like i mean as far as was it there was a college area i, I thought it was great i mean connecticut had a lot of the infrastructure that south florida didn't mm-hmm. you know there's a, a killer college radio station there wxci yeah. We had the best all-ages venue on the planet, the Anthrax, mm-hmm. you know, down the road in Norwalk. People were, a lot of people were into good music. You know, South Florida really was and still is basically a cultural wasteland. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're surrounded by hostile forces. Connecticut was not hostile, and there were a lot more people into good music and good fashion and yeah. art. And, like, it was just so much easier to be a damn weirdo in Connecticut than it was in South Florida. You know, you weren't risking a beat down by looking a certain way Mm -hmm. in Connecticut. So we just like jumped right into that, you know, and the people responded 
accordingly. Was there a, like a music scene in, yeah. around there? Yeah. Yeah. There were like a lot of bands, like even in the Florida days when I first met my, my then wife, she's like, oh, there's these bands in Connecticut. There's Violent Children and the Vatican Commandos and 76% Uncertain. Oh, and yeah. there's this brand new one called Youth of Today and uh, Seizure. There's just so many bands there. And I'm like, <laughs> sounds even better. Right? Yeah. You know, get me out of there. Because South Florida always had bands, you know, a lot of really good bands. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of the same deal. We were all embattled, and it was just really tough finding a place to play yeah, and yeah. like all the you know the basic stuff you need to be in a band. You're we down at the very end of the peninsula, mm-hmm. and at the time there was nowhere to play except maybe South Florida, Atlanta, fourteen hours away, and then maybe Gainesville in the middle. Yeah. You know? I've heard some other people that came from Florida talk about how like there really wasn't many there weren't many places to play there. Like, no. Because they're just music or punk music wasn't really that popular. No, in it that was area. extremely unpopular. Yeah. You know, the, the underground was underground. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, you know, I, I don't want to sell anybody short. You know, bands like Morbid Opera, Gay Cowboys in Bondage, mm-hmm. um, F, going up a little further north like Roach Motel, Hated mm-hmm. Youth, um, Lethal Yellow. You know, there, there was a lot. Yeah. It was just like really catch as catch can. Yeah. And Connecticut was just so much easier. Mm-hmm. And I love Connecticut. Huh? You know, maybe because I'm not from Connecticut, but I really like Connecticut. I got nothing bad to say about Connecticut. Yeah. I mean, I, you're, I, you're still there. Still there. 35 years and counting, you know. Do you think it has something to do with being the proximity of New York City? It helped. And, oh, yeah. And I guess to a certain extent, Boston as well. Boston, not so much, because Boston's about three, maybe four hours away, whereas New York City, you hop on the train, you're there in an hour and a half. Right. Yeah, New York, like in a lot of ways, Danbury could be considered an exoburb of New York. Right. It really isn't, but, it, you know, you <clears throat> could see it that way. So, yeah, proximity of New York, very helpful. Very helpful. Although these days, I, I couldn't tell you the last time I've even been to New York City. You know, New York City is just not the place it used to be. Um, maybe Connecticut is also not the place it used to be. But I think any place it. is the place it no. used to be. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Solo stuff really is about as as easy as you could possibly want. You know, mm-hmm. one man, one car, one guitar. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I'll sleep in my I'll sleep in my car. Yeah. I don't care. I'll sleep on a sofa. Great. That that's great. I love it. Yeah. You know? Waking up somewhere in somebody's living room and it's a place I've never been before. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a, a taste of somebody's life, you know, their neighborhood. It beats waking up in a holiday inn. And going downstairs and looking at uh, an interstate exit ramp, yeah, <laughs> you know, which I've certainly done plenty of, and I'm not going to stop. But given the choice, yeah, yeah, I'd rather wake up here, 
you know, open yeah. my eyes and say, ah, oh, wow, look at that eight track collection or oh, cool posters or yeah. oh, what, what's on the street outside. You know, it's just it's exciting. Yeah, it yeah. never stops being exciting and interesting. And, you know, obviously there's more moving parts with a band. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, my one of my bands, Ultra Bunny, we we toured DIY all the way. Oh, yeah. And um, it's always fun. Mm-hmm. It's always a blast doesn't always pay but it's always fun yeah <laughs> yeah that's what i said it's always fun it don't matter even if we have a shitty show it's it's, it's usually pretty fun yeah <laughs> you know and I, I can honestly i can count the number of shitty shows i've ever had on one maybe two hands yeah i mean we, you know? they don't happen that often no but, they really don't you know, every now and then you have a one that just don't go off the way the rest of them do Sometimes, mm. sometimes. I don't lose sleep over it anymore. Nah. <laughs> I don't think I ever lost sleep over it. There's always more, man. There's always more. So with the record store, you did you survive like when MP3s came along and people kind of stopped buying music? You survived that. I know. I know what eventually got you like why you shut down. Yeah, was just because the lease wasn't renewed. Yeah, but did you survive through any of that? Because I know like. Like I said, Repo shut down when yeah. MP3s came along. I just thought they were gone. It, it almost killed us. Mm-hmm. It was it was really rough. But it wasn't just MP3s and the internet. It was a whole set of different circumstances. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was a whole lot of circumstances. Um, but we had a very rough year. Like '97 was a very bad year for us. Mm-hmm. That was when I was talking to bankruptcy lawyers and, you know, returning bottles for whatever spare change I could cough up. Yeah. Like, literally. And um, it was partly MP3s. It was partly sort of losing touch with what was happening. Mm -hmm. You know, I was delegating too much responsibility and I wasn't hands-on enough. Yeah. So, between all that, we were sort of swirling in the bowl for a minute or two. But... I did eventually pick up the pick up the reins mm-hmm. and uh, get the ship back on course, and um, you know, MP3s and stuff like that ended up being a little bit less of an issue. Yeah, which is why I would, I would love to see a sequel to that movie you were talking about. Yeah. I need that record because that was made when the whole MP3 madness was pretty much at its peak. Oh yeah, yeah. And of course, things have changed so much since then. You know, so that kid's documentary was all about the decline and possible fall of record stores in the U.S., whereas now the story, 14 years later, is like an explosive rebirth. Yeah. Well, I know, like, at the end of that movie, they did interview the guys that had opened up a record store and seemed to be doing pretty well. So it was kind of like things were starting to turn, maybe. Maybe, maybe. When that movie was made. Yeah, like, even at that very moment. Yeah. You know, we might have already rounded the corner, Mm -hmm. which is kind of ironic when you think about it, you know? I mean, I've never stopped. I haven't had brick and mortar since then, but I've never stopped being in the business. Yeah. You know, for those of you who can't see where I am, I uh, walked in the room and the first thing I saw was crates of records and started digging <laughs> in, you know? It's like, hmm, hmm, you know? Yeah. If I don't want it for myself, maybe I can flip it, you know? It's incorrigible that way. Incorrigible. Could you ever see yourself going back into a brick and mortar business? Hmm. At this moment, No. But that doesn't mean it couldn't happen. Like, uh, and I, you know, it's like when you ask a band, so are you guys going to get back together? And they give an answer similar to that. And it yeah, seems yeah. like a total cop out. 
but that's really the only answer I, I have. It's like, no, I, I don't have any plans whatsoever. But you never know. So I'm yeah. saying you would, if the right opportunity presented itself and you saw it as being feasible, you would consider it. It would, it would have to be like... The, because the, now you have an educated idea of what the risk in the versus oh yeah. reward is. So It would have to be... I would have to be tired of doing rock and roll. You know, because that's the thing that drives me the most is getting to play. Oh, oh okay. I got you. Right, right. You know, that's... To that's, be able to travel. Yeah, to travel and to be in bands and... and not to, be locked down behind a counter. Exactly. Because if you're going to... You know, more like 27 hours a day, right, right. nine days a week. Because you know? no one considers about the time spent even when you're closed. You know, it's still a 24-7... Yeah. It's the same. I think of like, you know... Uh, friends I've had that were chefs. Yeah. You know, and it's like or people that have opened restaurants, you know. There's mm-hmm. no the the, the 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 location might be closed, but the business but never still closes all up here all and, or yeah. I always called it TTE, which is and, total trash existence. Well, it just <laughs> seems to me that it's like now that you are not brick and mortar and you're mobile, but you're always on the hustle. Yeah. So it's like more true than ever that you're twenty four seven. Yeah, but it's actually less pressure. Like right. I, I am completely jumping and moving at all times, but so many of the pressures are going. Like I don't have to worry about release dates. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't have to think about special orders. Overhead. Overhead, competitors, um, shoplifting, you right, know? Right. Like none of that stuff is in the equation anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, Mind you, I loved running that record store. I loved it. I had 21 years doing that. But, you know, by the time the landlord screwed us, I was burnt. Yeah. And I didn't realize how burnt I was, you know, until I woke up the Monday morning after everything was finally out of there and the, pl- the place was left broom clean. And I woke up and I was like, you know, gearing up to go to the store. And I was like, oh, I don't have to. And just like... Went back to bed. Right. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it was great. But, you know, to this day, I, I can't walk down a main street or something and see an empty storefront mm-hmm. and just kind of think, hmm, check it out. Yeah. You know? right. see, yeah. And that, that's how my mind works, too, especially since I've started to dip my toes into it. And it's probably going to be more like pop ups and things like that, like what you do. Yeah. But I've also thought about, like I said, uh, antique booth. And there's a there's a record. I hesitate to call it a record store, but it is a record store in Charlotte that is in one of those places. It's not. Have you ever been to Hardy Boys Records? You know what? I I went before they opened their spot. Mm -hmm. uh, The guy was doing like yard sales out of his garage. I did that a bunch of times, but I've still not yet made it to a shop. He's in the places. It's uh, it's not really an antique mall because it's more Mm -hmm. like there's crafty stuff there and like just basically they rent out booths. And he's upstairs, and I guess he's just grown to where it's basically like a full record store mm-hmm. in a place that he doesn't have to be at all the time. Right. Because yeah. there's somebody running the front counter. Of course, he doesn't get to watch over his merchandise so all like the time. It's more of like a consignment mm-hmm. kind of setup. But it's still like, you know, I, that's something yeah. I could see myself getting into if, if, if I did it. And well, you let, see let a lot grow. of that around I, I'd love here. For that to happen. I was talking about that on the way in with Malcolm. Mal, uh, he, he hit some sort of record shop around here, and we won't say what or where. And he found it to be a less than pleasant experience. Yeah. But I was telling him, I'm like, it seems like anymore, it's like there's there's a lot of uh, these antiques, you know, antique malls, and there's records set up. 
and and you'll, some of them are pretty deep. I was gonna say you'll find some. You'll find a lot at antique malls that everything is overpriced, like oh, way yeah, yeah. overpriced. That was, that's what I was also saying. There's, there's even was, one that I went to that everything's so overpriced. He's got it fifty percent off, and it's still overpriced. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> but you find those. There's a there's a handful that you find that actually get good stuff, and they have good prices. Yeah. Know? And yeah. I, that's what I aim to do. But know. it seems like with trash, you 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 kind of steered more into the, we'll say, alternative, quote-unquote, again, quote-unquote, subculture, more so than just your generalized, you know, used vinyl kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean you, had, you, a, you had a piercing and everything You had else. a clientele for it. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that, like, I don't know that that store would have worked near it would have been near successful here necessarily maybe like in chapel hill or maybe somewhere chapel but, hill but not like charlotte but not, not charlotte. charlotte you know i think that's why i think it's you know that's why i asked about the proximity to new york city yeah it just seems like it was just the whole culture was a little more with it yeah i mean i think like a, a northeastern thing in general you know but i think honestly and this is not um trying to get into braggadocio or anything but i think if i had opened up a record store anywhere i could have made it work because Mm -hmm. i i let the customers Mm. dictate the direction right of the store you know i mean within certain parameters Mm. like when we were open i flat out refused to sell anything by bruce springsteen i would not (laughs) sorry jeff williams sorry (laughs) jeff i would not sell billy joel you know, there were certain artists who just offended me. Simon and Garfunkel, never, <laughs> you know. So keeping that in mind, whatever somebody wanted, I'd bring in, you know, mm. if I thought it was worth bringing in. And my philosophy was if somebody, if one kid comes in and asks for something, I'd bring in two or three. Yeah. Because if they wanted it, well, somebody else okay. probably yeah. would. Yeah. And that would backfire on me sometimes, oh, but yeah. usually not. Usually it was like, whoa, why do you have this uh, this record by the Skipping Flippies? I didn't think anybody. Well, guess what? There was somebody <laughs> here and they wanted it too. So here it is. You can blow a lot of minds that way. All you got to do is listen. Yeah. Just listen to the people. And you were able to make some contacts and connections with kind of some names of certs, I guess. Yeah. Through, was- the, through the, like you mentioned in the yeah. documentary, it's... I was like, that surprised me when I saw it. Yeah, I was like, all of a sudden there was Thurston Moore, and I was like, I didn't know Malcolm knew Thurston Moore. Yeah. You know, well, they were, you know, Thurston and his family are all from the next town over mm-hmm. from Danbury. So, I mean, I think Thurston's brother might have even come in first, Gene, but they just came to the store because they saw a flyer, you know, and that was it, and. From that from that moment on, a lot of times when Sonic Youth were on tour, they would just stop by. Yeah. So it was a place to stop. You know, when you're on the road, you're mm-hmm. looking for things to do mm-hmm. to kill some of that time. And we were only one town over from, you know, the more family residence. So it just kind of made sense. Yeah. And they'd come in and, you know, if not shop, hang around a little bit. My My favorite memory of Sonic's coming into the store was when they were on tour for the Sister album mm-hmm. in 1987. And it was just the four of them. They came in one day en route to somewhere. And they they were shopping around. They didn't have any money, but they had this big box of promo albums from SST. They had all these sister LPs. Mm. And so they, they'd come in with this big box of records and say, Hey, how many, sister, how many sister albums for this Mingus record? How many sister albums for this T-shirt? 
or how many sister albums for this whatever this book and i was like well all right give me three sister albums and you can have <laughs> you know that yeah. that t-shirt and you know I ended up with a box of sister albums, you know, and it was that was just fun. Oh yeah, yeah. that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Thurston on the documentary that said that you know, going on tour was almost as much about going to record stores. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, and that resonated with me because like I've never really been on tour, but anytime I go out of town, and this has been since I was a teenager, my first thing is where's the record store? Oh yeah, I'm going to go to the record store while I'm in town. If there's three record stores, I'm going to go to all three of them. And I want to spend a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit there. Yeah. That last one's going to get more of my money because I'm saving some of it. <laughs> yeah, you're not, you're not rationing anymore. It's time to but, unload that money. But, uh, you know, that's that's just the thing. It's like, if I'm going to a new town, I want to know where the record store is, and I'm going to go there, and I want to buy something. Yeah. Because they're going to have something there that I'm looking for that I'm going to find, find at my record stores. To me, a perfect full day is when I'm on tour. Mm-hmm. I can wake up in somebody's living room. Um take a nice jog have some breakfast hit the record stores you know to sell stuff on my label Mm -hmm. and to find you know buy things and find things and then go play a gig what's better than that what could possibly be better than that i can't think of anything (laughs) the best it's the best and if i end up sleeping on somebody's couch Instead of in the car, even better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if I sleep in the car, well, that's not a big deal either. The old Subaru is very comfortable. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> but it really is great, you know, and finding new record stores, you know, like all the time, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's really cool. I've got uh, probably about a half a box of stuff I found on this trip yeah. at various stores, and I'm not going to keep too many of them, unfortunately, but uh, hey, Selling records is almost as good as keeping them. Sometimes that's what I kind of what I was getting at earlier when I was talking about how I'm having a hard time letting go of some of my records. But yeah. I've convinced myself that it's better to have a revolving collection of records than holding on to the same stuff that I only listen to once every year or so. Yeah, it gets impractical after yeah. a while. So. Like in my my personal collection, there there are certain core parts of it that are untouchable. Oh, yeah. yeah, the Devo. Yeah. Record collection. I agree. <laughs> that is inviolate. You won't see any Devo over there. Good for you. Sad for me. <laughs> um, the Devo collection. Sun Ra. I just love my Sun Ra records. Mm. And Husker Du. The Husker Du collection oh, stays. Yeah. The Black Flag collection stays. And everything else is more or less inventory worthy yeah you know like if someone comes up to me and asks specifically for a certain record and i've got it in my personal collection i pretty much can't say no yeah you know because it's man i'm here to sell that's my job and i figure well all right you know i really do love this original copy of raw power with the hype sticker on it and the shrink wrap intact and the inner sleeve but this guy wants it i'll probably find another one someday so let it go let it go actually before i do my pop-up next week one of my plans is to put a post out there are you looking for anything and yeah. if people say something i have in my collection oh really you know yeah what kind of devo have you got over there uh, i don't have a whole lot of devo and, and nothing that you don't have I can, I can guarantee you that All right. i wish i had more <laughs> well i'm just i'm just putting that out there you know the devo obsession i've runs got the deep. standard stuff so I, I know I promised to not talk, and here I am just <laughs> no, I, interrupting everything. I, I didn't mean to throw you off course. No, you're, but, you're not, because you're keeping it going. Uh-huh. Um, 
But so I don't know where we're going from See, here. you just cut them off. <laughs> <laughs> what were you trying to say, Russ? Well, no, you you mentioned on the way over here. You said you had a story, and you're like, ah, I'll save it. Mm. About somebody <laughs> visiting the store or something. So now he this peaked, be he peaked my curiosity. I was like, okay, I want to hear this. All right, all right. It better um, be good, otherwise I'm going to make you walk home. <laughs> I think it's pretty good, you know, because we, you know, like any record store owner will probably tell you the same thing. There are famous people stop in, mm-hmm. rockers stop in, and we had quite a few. You know, Sonic Youth, one of them, Ace Freely would shop there occasionally. Pretty much any time a band was in town to play Danbury, they'd stop by the store. Yeah. They were record geeks. Like I was, Russ made me remember that the Muffs stopped in one mm. time, and they, and I wasn't there. You know, um, you know. Plus, you have in stores with a lot of cool bands. Um, but probably my my single favorite time that anybody well known stopped into the store, and this guy actually used to come by our place a lot because mm. I was friends with his manager. And one day, his manager came in and um, and played a new release by this artist he was flogging, named Chubby C. And it was like a, a hip-hop thing. Okay. I thought, all right, well, that was cool. I didn't know much about hip-hop, but my then-wife knew a lot about hip-hop. And so she listened to it and said, yes, this is good. This is really good. Who is this? He said, you know what? I'll, I'll bring Chubby C in, and you can meet him. And he'll you know sign the, some CDs or stuff. And I was like, all right, cool. And so he comes in one day with Chubby C. It's Chubby Checker. Chubby Checker. Oh, wow. Chubby Checker. <laughs> Here's Chubby Checker in my store. And he was the coolest, nicest dude you could imagine. Yeah. And he loved our store. And, like, every time he would come in, he would, he would always buy something. He would buy... We used to sell these Guatemalan handbags, you know? So he bought a Guatemalan handbag. Or he'd just always buy something. I was like, Chubby, no, 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 I want to buy this, you know? And my favorite visit of all was one day he came walking in through the front door by himself. He's like, hey, and I was like, hey, Chubby, what's up? He said, oh, I'm on my way to a gig. I'm playing one of the casinos. And I uh, have my tour bus with me, and I figured I'd stop in. And we didn't have a big parking lot. We had a pretty small parking lot. I said, dude, where'd you put the bus? So I just parked it in the, the road outside. And Mill Plain Road, where we were on, was like a busy thoroughfare, you know? It was like the, a main artery on the west side of town. He just parked his tour bus right there in the middle of Mill Plain Road, <laughs> blocking, you know, one full lane of traffic. And I look out, and sure enough, there's the big tour bus. It's Chubby Checker on the side. <laughs> and he's inside just kind of, you know, browsing around. While meanwhile, traffic is, you know, backing up <laughs> and trying to get around. But nobody seemed to be pissed off. There weren't, like, hawking horns. Well, why would they? I mean, it's it was Chubby, Chubby, Checker, Checker, Chubby Checker's tour bus, you know? I want to so, know, did, did I just, you know, I seemed like it'd be too good of a temptation to pass up. Be like, gift Chubby Checker some Gigi Allen. Oh, man. I don't think <laughs> Just a picture like of that. Chubby Checker holding a Gigi Allen record would be worth... <laughs> I would just want to see his face whenever he listened to it. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah I don't know, man. <laughs> What is this shit? <laughs> yeah, but that that was cool. Just and then, and I and I tried to get a picture of his bus out there blocking the road, but I have mm. bad dead battery or something like that. But Chubby was cool. If you're out there, hello. <laughs> that and um, I think having Blowfly. No, oh, yeah. He did an in store, and he and his band also came in and wants to do some shopping. They had to buy wrestling masks 
for some gigs. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we, we had some really wild luchador masks, mm-hmm. and they got some of the most bizarre-looking ones we had. But, you know, some people came in, and um, Blowfly's manager was calling him Clarence, you know, because Clarence Reed. And this one guy, this one customer was listening in. He said, Clarence? Clarence Reed? Are you, are you the Clarence Reed? He was like, well, yes, I am. Oh, could I have your autograph? And so Blowfly, you know, he's just plain clothes. He wasn't Blowfly. Right. He grabs a, uh, like an album flat, you know, it's got some album artwork mm, on the front yeah. and a blank back. Yeah. He grabs one of those and signs on the back, you know, um, you know, suck my dick. <laughs> and, you know, like a big drawing of a huge erect <laughs> dick. Blowfly. And he gave it to this guy. And the dude was just like, <laughs> like thanks <laughs> like Spinal Tap where they signed the black record with black yes. markers <laughs> Ooh, thanks other than that very friendly and approachable guy yeah. I love Blowfly he's a good dude <laughs> So after the record store closed down, I know you kind of kept doing pop-ups, selling records on the yeah. side. What, 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 what did you do after that? Were you still playing music at that time? Yeah, you-, you know, I basically decided this that was my chance. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, this is it. I got to go for the rock and roll. Yeah. And because uh, we, you know, I, I had a firm foundation on which to launch myself, you know, because I wasn't chained to brick and mortar anymore, but I still had, like, I had a whole circuit of colleges I would sell records at and record mm-hmm. shows. So I was still bringing in the funds, but I had a lot more leeway in yeah. terms of time. So I thought, well, okay, this is it. This is this is my opportunity to go more full-time rock and roll. And I was trying to think, well, do I want to go stand-up comedy do I want to be a solo acoustic guitar guy? What do I want to do? And I molded all over and decided that solo acoustic mm-hmm. punk rock dude was the way to go. And Ultra Bunny as well. Because okay. Ultra Bunny, I've been doing that since 2002. Yeah. And um, Ultra still Bunny. still kind of keep that going today. Yeah, Ultra Bunny. Yeah. Yep. It's uh, Ultra Bunny sort of comes and goes, but it's mm-hmm. still the longest lasting project you know 20 years yeah. as of next year yeah. and uh you know it's all improv it's uh it's, it's an offshoot of the bunny brains mm-hmm. and it's fun yeah it's fun because you never know what's going to happen <laughs> you know just imagine hawk wind but all improv yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what we do so i was like well all right this is it i gotta i gotta give it a shot and so i took about a year or so and just sort of woodshed it around connecticut in the New England area and got my acoustic chops together and um, just never stopped, mm-hmm. basically. And 
the North Carolina connection comes in again mm. because Anti-Scene played a gig up in, um, I keep wanting to say Waltham, Massachusetts. It wasn't Waltham. Pittsfield, thank you. Pittsfield, Massachusetts in 2011. Yeah. And I, like I mentioned before, I hadn't been in touch with Anti-Scene since about 1996. We just lost, you know, yeah. just lost track yeah, of yeah. each other. You know, we just drifted apart somehow. It's like, man, I haven't seen the guys in forever, and they're just playing up in Pittsfield. I got to go see them. So I drove up there, saw everybody. It was like, yeah, you know, great big old reunion. And for, were you there? For, you weren't no, there for I, that I, run. I, I didn't you? make that run. Okay. Uh, that's right, because uh, Barbecue, Jeff Young was, uh, was he running merch. Yeah. Oh, wow. He was running merch. But that, that's no, this is before I was in the band. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still one of Joe's last runs. Yeah, yeah. Was it? Yeah, I guess it was, it wasn't 20, it? What, what year was that? That was 2011. Yeah, so, yeah. Wow. It was only two more years, three Man, more years. Who knew? Hmm. But, you know, I went there to see the, the show. It was great. And I was talking to Joe Young. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm doing this solo acoustic thing. And I been playing around a lot and I, th- I, I want to start playing some shows man I want to I want to hit the road he said well come to North Carolina come play the, the porch of uh, Repo Cheapo in Lenore mm-hmm. it's like really I said yeah come on down I was like alright that's cool that's all I need is a place and so I called him up like a week or two later or whatever to set it up he said oh man I'm sorry we can't do it it turns out that anti-scenes playing a couple of gigs that weekend that you want to come down. We're playing at Fayetteville and we're playing in Hickory. And I said, well, why don't you have me open for you? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, oh, that sounds like fun. Let me talk it over with Jeff and we'll see if we can do it. And Jeff said yes. And so I um, got those two dates. I booked another one in Chapel Hill mm-hmm. and one in Raleigh. I don't even know how I found actually I do know I, uh, a former customer of mine lived in Chapel Hill and he turned me on to some guy in Raleigh who was okay. booking so still DIY you know maximum rock and roll wasn't really a force anymore but that's where my customer base yeah <laughs> I mean because I, I know people literally everywhere yeah. and a lot of times when I want to tour I can reach out to people who used to work for me or who are my customers and say guys what do you have is there anything in your town and the, and the answer often enough is yes yeah. to where I can go somewhere and play something. So there's a North Carolina connection again. My first little run as a solo acoustic guy was Hickory, Fayetteville, Raleigh, and Chapel Hill. Yeah. And um, Hickory was the first proper one. Like I played this kind of warm up show in Charlottesville, Virginia at some diner mm-hmm. where they would just have people come in and play during dinner hour. Yeah. So it, was, it wasn't a gig per se. It was just something to do on my way down to Hickory. And I knew somebody there, one of my former employees. So it was just a cool way to get from Connecticut to Hickory. Mm-hmm. And so I walk into this place called the Wizard Saloon in Hickory, yeah. Total Biker Bar. I didn't know you did that. I did that. I walked into the wizard. <laughs> oh my god! And of course, I'm thinking, "What am I doing oh here? God. Why am I here? I'm going to die. I'm going to die." But since Anti Scene was playing, okay, you played. Okay, I went to Fayetteville. You were at Fayetteville. I don't know why I would have gone to Fayetteville, not Hickory. Me neither. Interesting. Yeah, go figure. Me and. Me and Dave went to Fayetteville. 
I remember that. Hmm. Anyway, sorry. Go I ahead. don't. Interrupt but then your, then I, you do. I didn't mean to interrupt your story. <laughs> That's all right. Just, so this guy from Connecticut walks into a biker bar in Hickory <laughs> and um, proceeds to put on his silver lame shirt and his skin tight red pants and uh, you know his neon socks or whatever <laughs> and sit down on the stage in front of the big mural with the wizard on it and start to think oh boy this is what we would call sink or swim mm-hmm. and so of course at that very moment Jeff Clayton pulls up a chair stage left like right there on the stage Joe Young pulls up a chair stage right right there so I'm sitting like within arm's reach of both of these dudes pretty much and they're like okay start the show and thank God they did because when they did everybody came in Mm -hmm. they were like if Jeff and Joe are checking this guy out we should too and it also spurred me on to just play and just do it and just kick ass which I did and it worked out and that was you know the better part of 11 years ago and here I am so is that the the solo acoustic stuff is that original music do you do cover songs what what, what, what do you do with, with that these days, it's primarily original, but the covers I choose are like songs probably no one's ever heard of. Yeah. Or, you know, I do, they're coming to take me away. Ha ha. Okay, you yeah. know, I do my own <laughs> version of that. Um, but yeah, mostly original. Okay. And mostly very jaundiced, skeptical views of the human race, yeah, yeah. starting with yours truly. Because as much as I hate to admit it, I'm one of them too. Yeah. <laughs> so what you know, I'm I'm just a wealth of material to write about, and so are all of you. <laughs> and it's a hoot. It's just a lot of fun. Oh yeah. You know, it's yeah. not any kind of singer songwriter stuff. It's unfettered, full bore mm-hmm. punk rock. Yeah. yeah. I entertain. <laughs> I don't sit there hoping you'll like me. I will reach out and grab you by the throat, mm-hmm. and. If I can't make you like me, then I'll just ignore you. You know, it's like, whatever. But it's cool. Looking forward to getting to do a lot more of that in the near future. Welcome to the Idiots Club. 6.5 billion strong. You are now a lifetime member and so is your mom and so is your dog. Lots to do at the Idiots Club. Cigarettes, politics, religion too. Welcome to the Idiots Club. We're all idiots and we like you. of the Idiots Club go on morning, noon, and night try to discuss logic and reason but it always ends up a fight when you join the Idiots Club you never know quite what's in store for you welcome to the Idiots Club life and death are the only dues Hopefully I can come out to the next one. I wanted to come see that one. That I normally work Monday nights, but I'd been working Monday during the day, the two weeks before that, and then that week I had to work Monday night. Ah, the night that I played in Morganton, and you weren't there. I remember that. I remember that very well. You were not in Morganton. But for the people who were... It was fine. That's it what was I've heard. Fun. I thought it was a great show. It was really. We set out. You know, Stacy Peak at Green Eggs and Jam. I'm going to send a big shout out to Stacy Peak, another one of the good guys. Mm-hmm. He just set me up on the sidewalk in front of the store on the main drag there in Morganton, and 
and we just went for it and had yeah, a show. That's awesome. It was really, really cool. And I've played Morganton several times, mm-hmm. but that was the most fun. Yeah. That was the best one. Yeah. And I, you know, yeah, really hope to do it again soon or wherever else I can around here, you know? Now, is there anything else we need to cover before we get to anti-scene? Is there anything more you want to talk about about the label or? Woo, doggy. Only I the- mean, I know you've got plenty of stories yeah it's, it's just <laughs> but long, we're, we're also at like two hours yeah and, and <laughs> i don't like to get like to let it get too much longer than three because i like to try to cut it down to an hour and a half to two but yes. i'll tell you sometimes they come out a little bit longer than that that's fine i'd like to go <laughs> home and eat some food too so it's all right now basically um i'll just put in a little plug mm-hmm. you know look up tpos that's t p o s as in 10 pounds of salt yep. <laughs> as in the people of saudi arabia as in, those potatoes ought to suck. <laughs> TPOS on your usual internet locations such as Discogs, mm. eBay, Bandcamp. Yeah. I'm going to ask this question. Yes, sir. The obvious question, because I get asked all the time. Oh, boy. Just through association. TPOS. It's the old Tops label, inverted. Mm-hmm. Yes. I knew that. Yes. What was your intention Originally, what does TPOS stand for? He's well, not going to tell you, probably. Well, I know, I know what I think it stands well, for yeah. based off of what little information I've had, but I, I, I never knew. I never got an official. So now I'm putting you on the spot here, All hot right. mic. What the fuck does TPOS stand for? All right. Usually I just deflect that question by saying it stands for whatever you want it to stand for. Right. Which I've gotten a great big long list of things that TPOS <laughs> could stand for because of that. And yeah. I, I, I solicit more, you know, if anybody's that, got any that ideas. That was not the question that was asked. Oh, all right. He's not letting me off the hook <laughs> at all. At all. What was your intention? Okay. The truth of the matter is, and this gets back to Rick from high school. Rick from high school came up to me one day and said, let's do an underground newspaper and just piss everybody off. So we did. Mm-hmm. We put out this underground newspaper that made fun of all the football players and the cheerleaders and the jocks. And it was really scurrilous and scatological. And we got in trouble for it. <laughs> it's the only thing I ever got in trouble for in my entire academic career. And the name of the underground paper was The Piece of Shit. <laughs> I was correct. You were correct, sir. Mad Brother Ward gets the point. That's right. <laughs> and so, yeah, when we were going to put out a record, I was like, just got like, a point. Yeah. <laughs> I've waited my whole life for this point. A point. Excuse me, I'm getting emotional. You know, once again, his idea. We'll, we'll name it after the underground paper that we got in trouble for. Yeah. We'll call our record number one on TPOS. And that's it. That's awesome. the true story. I like it. I, and I like the fact that you use the Tops logo. Yeah, God. It's, it's cool. Because you look at it and you think, I've seen this before. Not many people have spotted that. A yeah. couple, just a couple. Not many. Yeah. I guess you just had to have the right um, flea market records yeah, in there. I guess you know, so. That was you it. Had to, your grandparents had to be of a particular. Yeah, you just had <laughs> yeah. to run across those records at some point. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was the record itself was Mr. Bongo plays in hi-fi. Yeah. <laughs> And Mr. Bongo. Mr. Bongo. And I picked it up because it was by Mr. Bongo. I mean, I can pass I can, up yeah, Mr. Bongo. Mr. Bongo it just turned out to be on Topps Records. And you know, oh, yes, I have an idea. <laughs> All right, now with that bullshit, let's talk about anti-scene. <laughs> so, I guess, how, well, 
How, how did you become the bass player for Anti-Scene? Oh, <laughs> a, I, I, I was trying to think of a better way to ask that question, but I'm like, nah, just, just ask. That's like, pretty good. Very yeah, direct. Yeah, yeah. Very, you know, very no nonsense. Well, we're just jumping from like here to here, and I'm like, I guess let's just jump right well, into that's it. That's fine. Well, you know what? And I, I was sort of you know, anticipating that question, and I remembered that the first time I was offered the bass player of Anti-Scene was in 1992. And I had plumb forgotten about this. 92? 92. Are you sure 92? 1992. Okay, and then there's a story I don't know. I hadn't thought about this in years. In years I hadn't thought about this. But I'm going to suspect I think I might know what, what the story is. But go ahead. I don't know. Let me know. Yeah. Um, Anti-scene were coming up to Connecticut to play some shows. Mm. They were going to play at... Um, this place called the moon in new haven and i guess they had some new york shows tagged on to that as well yeah but they were coming up to connecticut and they might have even done an in-store i don't remember exactly but for whatever reason and you know jeff and or tom o'keefe might have better memories of the backstory because i really don't know but it's one of those deals where there was a bit of a heel turn going on and Tom was traveling separately from the rest of the band. He had to, he was visiting relatives in Connecticut or something like that. And he was taking the train in. And for some reason, there was, I don't know, some kind of heat there, as, you know, there has periodically been in the band. Mm-hmm. And I guess there, I guess there was some doubt as to whether Tom was going to make the show or something. And so Jeff said, Hey, man, you want to play bass tonight? <laughs> And I was like, well, yeah, but I don't know, I don't know any of the songs. I don't, I, I don't know what I'm doing. He said, well, just in case, you know, in case Tom won't do it or can't do it, I want you to be ready. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I, I, how can I possibly be ready? You know, there's just no way that I was ready for the gig. But yeah, he sort of put that. Of course, Tom showed up and they played the show and, and they, they burned it up. Mm-hmm. But that was uh, an offer that was made. I was unaware of that story. Yeah, and um, you know it's funny because I've got you know I obviously had the, the the band autograph a ton of stuff. To this day, I've got all these records from that day that are autographed by everybody but Tom. His like you know uh, Throgmorton signed him, Joe and Jeff, but not Tom. And that's kind of just how I remember that. Mm-hmm. So Throg was with them then. Yeah. Mm. So was that 92? No, you know, I thought Throg was gone by like 90, 91. Oh, I'm just, I think when we played it was like with, the end of 91. I remember Doug showing up at some shows, but he was out of the band. At the, and yeah. That was around 91, 92. And then they had Steve. Yeah. Steve Sadler. Yeah. Still playing locally. And then they had Greg. Yeah. So I don't know, but that's a that's kind of a blurred period. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, thirty not really years ago. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Doug because one of the one of the things they signed was a, like an early CD version of Noise for the Sake of Noise, mm-hmm. and I didn't even have a CD player, and I was at war with CDs, so I made sure they signed the playable side, so it would never be played. Right. And it's still a cherished possession of mine to this day. <laughs> so that was the first time. However brief or fleeting Mm. or you know non-serious it might have been um you know jeff asked me once if i wanted if i wanted to manage the band 
like around 95, 96, and I couldn't do that because mm-hmm. I was full-time doing the record, record store. store yeah. So there's always kind of this, like, undercurrent somehow. We want you to be involved in the band. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. And I put out records on the label. Yeah, I did yeah. Eat More Possum and the Split with Blue-Green Gods and, um, you know, the Carolina Shit Kickers record and, you know, the Rawhead, Mad Brother Ward. There's always been this sort of involvement, mm-hmm. you know. And... You know, fast forward past through and through all that to 2019 when I was out at a thrift store looking for records, of course, <laughs> and I pull into my driveway and I whip out my phone to check my messages and there's a, a message from Jeff Clayton, who I had not heard from in a while, you know, and he said, would you like the opportunity to play bass for the South's premier boogie band? <laughs> I read that and I said, Y E S, send. And I was wigging because the message had come through at like, say, 3 15 p.m. and mm-hmm. it's now 3 30. Yeah. It's like, fuck. Somebody's already doing it. I, I've blown it. <laughs> yeah. It's been 15 minutes. <laughs> I want this. I want this. Because I always had this sort of Im- Im- imaginary scenario mm-hmm. where I would ask Jeff if I could play a show with anti-scene if i could come down to charlotte and play one show on bass Mm -hmm. never asked him about it but i just thought you know maybe i'll do that someday and now here he is asking me if i want to play so i said (laughs) yes yes is what i said i said yes and a few minutes later he texted back and said okay i'll let you know and i'm just like oh my god (laughs) this is terrible the suspense yeah and so i'm like all right i'll just live my life normally i guess until i hear back if that's even possible and um within the hour he said okay you're in we have a tour coming up with i hate god and the obsessed and in two weeks mm-hmm. yeah do you, wanna, weeks. Do, do you want to hear the flip side of that yeah <laughs> you tell that like okay the flip side of that was our drummer, our previous drummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a lot going on. Yeah, I'm not going to knock the guy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because you know I'll go on record right now saying I like the guy. Oh yeah, yeah. But he had a lot going on. Some mm-hmm. bad stuff happened to him, and I'm not going to discuss that yeah. for anybody. Yeah. But he kind of just flaked. He flipped out, and I had kind of saw it coming six months before it happened. I mm-hmm. actually I can. I, I remember telling the guys one time, don't be surprised if we show up one day and all his shit's gone. And that is exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. Two weeks out before we were supposed to go out on a tour with I Hate God and the Obsessed. Showed up for practice one afternoon and Jeff and Barry are sitting there and I, you know, I just, I come in and I just have my blinders on. I'm going to get my gear together and they don't say anything so I'm thinking they're fucking with me and I mm. didn't know what was going on but I wasn't going to sell it and finally Barry goes uh, did you not notice anything and I turned around and all the drums are gone yeah I was like oh shit and then it hit me oh shit you know we got shows coming up we got a lot happening yeah. here and we were like well fuck what do we do so you know the obvious quick fix was Barry had previously, you know, had an already eight years tenured yeah. service Drums, as the yeah. drummer. 
it would have been far easier for him to go back and play drums rather than have a new guy come in and in two weeks try to learn it. It seems like it would have it just logically it seemed to us someone learning the material on bass. Yeah. Oh yeah. Would have been easier. And so, but we considered some names for a drummer that Mike could also do it. We did both. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my memory is we hit up two or three drummers that we knew and then two or three bass people who could possibly pay, play bass. Mm-hmm. And it was Malcolm that was the first immediate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I don't think, you know, after that, there really wasn't a lot of consideration to be made. And, um, you know, it was initially it was quick fix but he came and i mean it it it, it, just by coincidence he and i have a very similar kind of pick attack Mm -hmm. and that kind of matters when you you know you know from playing locking in with each each other and it just fell together we practiced what two times before that tour twice (laughs) we had two practices and Mm -hmm. then loaded up and went to the first show and they were all really strong shows. Yeah, yeah. And after that, it was like, well, do you want to finish out the year and help us? And of course. Mm-hmm. He didn't, con- you know. And that just was like, well, he's made himself available and we've just rolled with him. So Malcolm became the new member of Anis. Yeah. Well, the anti scene doesn't play out quite as much as they used to well, in past years. Yeah, well, this is, you know, we're, this was spring of 2019. Mm. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, that and, I didn't really had a whole lot of chance. Yeah, to, we just, and then, I guess, when did COVID hit? I don't even know now. March of 2020. It, just, it felt like, it feels like we've been in this shit for five years, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. But one of, my, one of my questions was, so, like, how often do you get to practice with the band? Do you just... Before shows, usually or? a couple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we only show. practice about two or three times. <laughs> I didn't think that you came down here just like, oh, let me ride down there just to practice. No, no. I mean, you know, if if it were feasible, I yeah. would I would love to be like a full time practicing member. We of the band. You guys do that. You do get together and practice. So yeah, we get together regularly. and are you know as we approach something, I'll usually put together a set list. Mm-hmm. And then pass so it can, along, and yeah. he'll know what to prepare for. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's always on point. He comes in, he's done his homework, and it's. I mean, you know, we we we're playing Saturday as we record this. Yeah, yeah. Um, we practiced last night and tonight. Yeah, and I think we're ready. Oh yeah, I think we killed it today. Yeah. It's 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 gotten. It's kind of almost spooky how well it comes together. Yeah. That's I was good. I was yeah. pleasantly so like I did I really honestly didn't expect anything else but like the first time we actually got together before the first gig on that tour and it I mean yeah it just clicked mm-hmm. and I was like yeah you know like I knew it was going to be good but I didn't think it was going to be that easy and that good and yeah. it's been that way the whole time mm-hmm. you know so how does like songwriting go these days do you like I guess. Okay, well, we're working on a new album, mm-hmm. and I guess I would say most of the music I've written. Yeah, um, you send it like the ideas to him, he and yeah, we've we've gotten to together. We've done some FaceTime. He's contributed lyric ideas, and Jeff has pulled off of that. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, after that, it, it's still collaborative. Yeah, 
but in a kind of weird, different way. Yeah, I just kind of wondered, like, if like if you just wrote all the songs, then like here's here's what you're playing, or if it was like collaborative, like that. Yeah. That's that's good to keep everybody in the loop, and and technology allows you to do that a lot better. Yeah, yeah it's it's, yeah. it's it's easier than you would think it would be, but it's still not you optimal. Can't really but practice together via I, Zoom. But yeah, you can, you can it, it, like, it would be better <laughs> if we could, but you know. Well, because like what we're doing now is like they the the dudes in the band barry and russ primarily you guys they have recorded the guitar and drum tracks yeah. for the new album and i've got them at home mm-hmm. and so what i'm going to do now is for the next month until our next gig at the tipsy borough on december 18th mm-hmm. i'm going to be woodshedding those songs and coming up with bass parts and like the way i envision it happening is i'm going to lay down some bass parts send it to them and they'll say, well, okay, this is good, this isn't, this works, this doesn't, and I'll adjust accordingly, mm-hmm. record another, like, scratch track, send it to them, they'll say, all right, that's good. And then by the time I get down here in December, we'll have everything ready to go yeah. to just enter the studio and record knock it, it out. Yeah. Which is, uh, that's kind of how we did the um, Before I Hang split. Is it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't actually send any bass parts down prior, but I'd worked them out. And then showed up at the studio, and I think we did everything in one take, basically. Is that, was really is that the easy. most recent record? Yeah. I was going to say, we, we should talk about that, too. We should, because it's a damn good record. Yeah. Well, that also ties in a little bit to your TPOS thing. So, I'm trying to remember the how this came together. What, the the uh, Before I Hang split? Yeah, as far as the, the whole Jim Jones thing. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. Well, I mean, because you well, guys... I know. Go ahead. Well, because you had the idea of doing this suite about mm-hmm. Jonestown and the mm-hmm. Reverend Jim Jones and the People's Temple. And I knew you had those recordings. Yes. Because that's something I got from you 30 years ago. Yes. And I had always had it in my head that I was like, somebody should do something with this. But when I got it 30 years ago and I had my first little band, we mm-hmm. talked about doing that. But it was just going to be a song that had some sound bites in it yeah. kind of thing. Of course, we never got that far. But it was always in the back of my head that, you know, in, in addition, like he mentioned, the, the Charles Manson thing, he had other recordings that he mm-hmm. had available that was some. Like you said, archivist. <laughs> odd <laughs> Major stuff. Major archivist. Odd yeah. stuff. And that, that Jim Jones stuff is spooky to listen to because it's not make-believe. It's not fiction. It's real. And, you know, if you know that story, it's 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 yeah. just a dark, sad uh, yes. story. <laughs> it's you know? dark. And um, Jeff and I were talking about, you know, we're always looking for just kind of different things to do. And he had, he, you know, Jeff knows a lot of the deep, old school, obscure punk rock. Mm-hmm. And we, we'd want, you know, he's, we, he would talk about, you know, it'd be cool if we could dig out something that no one's done, cover something that, you know, would be super obscure, you know. And, um, he mentioned, you know, there's this band from Texas called The Hates, mm-hmm. and they had this great song about the Jim Jones thing, and it's called The Last Hymn. So that's what started that. And it's real short, and in, in the way we did it, of course, you know, probably shorter than their version. I don't no. know. <laughs> uh, you know, I I had to readapt it because I had to power chord it out, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's the kind of punk rock from before, you know, when it was like guys that could play yeah. actually play guitar <laughs> that are kind of dumbing down their thing right 
I have to I'm start with dumb. So, <laughs> you know, we've, we figured it out and it was real short. And so I started thinking, what if we tacked on, like, what if we did something else and made it, yeah, you know, and it kind of turned into like a, you know, that's kind of my who influence, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's a three part thing. And the, in the last hymn, the, it was kind of dropped in the middle. So, uh, am I over explaining this? No. <laughs> so it sounds, you know, it's, it's kind of, com- you know, it was kind of a, not a big reach for, for us, but it was, it was definitely left field. Yeah. And so the whole thing is, you know, almost one big song in three parts, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. With, with samples with from the, the, the last samples, ever. Yeah. And it's know. not pro Jim Jones. No, you know, no, yeah. not by anything. <laughs> not by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, I, I kind of got also back into that. I saw a documentary recently. It was just really just, you know, it's just a really heart-wrenching story yeah. if you if and you I know think, anything about it. And mm-hmm. I think the record reflects that, you know, because Barry actually put together the flow of the songs and the use of the samples. Yeah. And the way he put it together, it, it pretty much tells the whole story of the People's Temple being run out of Indiana and moving to California and finally to Guyana. And that's compassionate actually, you Mm -hmm. know, I really do Mm -hmm. like to the, to the extent where, and I haven't done this yet, but I want to write an essay to send this, the, the Jonestown Institute in San Diego. They're the, the curators of the entire Jonestown archive. Mm -hmm. And they, they try to keep track of everything culturally influenced by Jonestown. And I think it'd be really great if they were aware of our record yeah. and could put that in their archive. So, and I don't think it's inappropriate at all. I think they would actually like it. Yeah, yeah. So that's on the back burner for something I want to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great record. I mean, it's my, my first like real full-time hardcore as a member contributing to a record. Yeah. yeah. And I love it. I think it's a very auspicious debut, if I do say so myself. Oh, yeah. We don't treat it like a whole song on the when we play it live. We pick up with the last hymn, and the third part's called Legacy, mm-hmm. and we run that together as kind of one thing when we play it live. We've been playing that live pretty regular for every yes. show we've done since since coming back out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, since we come back at it. Yeah. And it's good, man. Those tunes are barn burners. Yeah. I enjoy playing them. Legacy especially. Legacy is just like a freight train rolling down the tracks. Yeah. So. so that's what you people can look forward to when you come out to see the almighty anti-scene whenever and wherever that may be. Maybe December 18th at the Tipsy Burrow yep, that's for what our saying. free Christmas <laughs> show. Mm? <laughs> Think about it. You know you don't want to miss it because it's going to be good. Is there anything else we need to talk about that, that I didn't think to ask about that you wanted to cover? That Ooh, Well, I got to tell the Chubby Checker story. Uh, <laughs> it kind of made my night. And I got my plugs in, and we've talked about uh, the almighty anti-scene. Yeah. I mean, we didn't talk much about anti-scene, but that you're kind of, like you said, 2019 pandemic happened. It's just been a handful of shows so far. Yeah, so I mean, there, there'll be more to talk about about the, that down the road. Yeah, when we get the album finished, and it's still a good ways out, mm-hmm. but uh, we've got stuff still coming out in the intern. You know, there'll be another. What else? I you know, I get it starts blurring in my head. We oh, had the live at quarantine, mm-hmm. quarantine two. Now we've got a quarantine two. Yeah, Halloween. 
in quarantine when we did the Halloween oh, thing, yeah, which yeah. you can which is, see the video of that. It's on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's great, man. I'll, I'll admit to marking out on that myself. Oh, I, that's, that was such I a great production. It, a yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. really they, came out so good. The uh, TKO has really done a lot to put into the into the packaging of this thing. And I think it's going to be really special. Everything. I think, you know, people really enjoy it. And, you know, like I said, this new album, we're just really kind of breaking ground on it. I mean, we've been working on the songwriting and whatever for a while, but it's just in the last few weeks that we've really come to start really re- the recording process. Like we're a long way away from it. Yeah. Yeah. We had finished, but once all that gets rolling and this COVID stuff really clears up enough for what, you know, we'll probably get a lot busier. Oh Yeah. Gavagamo Hunt Media Production. Was that the black flag thing? Yeah. That you weren't supposed to actually be on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were, we were booked, but, you know, because of no cell phones and no internet and right, all right. that, there was confusion about we, we lost touch with the promoter right. and he thought we just weren't going to show up. Oh. <laughs> so imagine his surprise when surprise. we did. <laughs> and by the way, uh, can we use your drum kit oh man that's whew. to hear that whole story you have to look at uh, my my vlog <laughs> tent talks tunes that's a long ass story but it's a good one it's, it's such a, good a good one. one just basically in spite of all the odds we did end up playing with black flag on their equipment on their equipment well on their on their drum on their set. drum set yes on their drum set and yeah we'll just we'll just leave it at that it's a, it's a teaser a for you but it it, it kind of it, 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 it,